and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke First of all, thank you, Mr. Jeezy. Second of all, welcome everybody to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. I am Randy. My guest today is Dave Fleming, play-by-play voice of the San Francisco Giants. He also calls college football, college basketball, uh, and baseball on ESPN. He's a passionate golfer, which I'll get into with him And he's got an interesting background. He's a graduate of Stanford University where he majored in classics. You don't uh, don't see that every day. And he also went on to Syracuse and got a master's degree in broadcast journalism. As Dave will detail, he got to start calling minor league baseball. Uh, He's called Stanford football and basketball and has been with the Giants now since 2004. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to thank the sponsor for today's episode. It's a new sponsor. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered you are, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from both your workouts and the normal everyday stressors of your life. Whoop tracks all four stages of sleep, slow wave, REM, light, and awake, and can tell you how much sleep you've gotten down to the minute. Their sleep tracking has also officially received third-party validation. It's one of the things they they sent us bands, oh gosh, about a month ago. It's been one of the things I've most enjoyed about it, understanding my sleep patterns. I was a little, if you've seen Strapped at all, I was a little nervous, maybe some sleep apnea, but um, you know, you can You can see exactly how many disturbances you have throughout the night, uh, how long they last, and a bunch of other sleep statistics, which has been very enlightening. And then, of course, with the sleep, it also goes in to tell you, you know, how recovered your body is, how how ready it is to take on strain through workouts and and whatever else you have going on in your life. Uh, And they've recently partnered with the app Strava, which is a popular uh, running and cycling app. So there's some seamless integration there. Right now, listeners, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code TRAPDRAW at checkout. Go to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter the code TRAPDRAW, all one word, to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop today. Joining me now on the phone is play-by-play man for the San Francisco Giants. He's been doing it, oh gosh, 17, 18 years now. Um, And also play-by-play man on ESPN doing college football, college basketball, has done pro football, pro basketball. It's Dave Fleming. Dave, thanks for taking the time. How are you today? Hi, Randy. I'm good. And just a tiny bit of golf. We don't do much golf at ESPN, but I do do a, at least a little bit of it. Oh, nice. Okay. I, uh, I, I sheepishly, I, yeah, I did not even realize that. Well, we've, you know, the only golf that I've ever done for ESPN ABC has been the Women's Tour Championship for a few years when we used to have the rights to the final round. Uh, now that we are expanding 
are, uh, I think we ESPN expanding digital rights to some of the majors and uh, big tournaments. Uh, hopefully I'm going to be a part of that too. So you're, you are excused for not knowing that because it truly has been just a little bit uh, of it so far. Okay. Uh, well, I knew that's, that's awesome news though. I know ESPN will be doing much more of that. And I, uh, I look forward to hearing you more and more on the, on the golf call. So that's, that's fabulous. Well, me too. It's a hard, uh, it's a hard one to pair with baseball and, uh, I love them both, but you know, it's always been a, a goal to do some more golf. So I'm excited to have a chance, hopefully, to, to add at least a few days of golf extra per year. That would scratch my itch, I think. There you go. And I know you are a golfer, and I want to ask you about golf in, in just a second. But if you don't mind, I'd love to start with baseball and the somewhat recent news, the, the return to baseball, right? Uh, they finally uh, have a plan in place, and we're set to begin, oh gosh, in about three weeks, um, July 23rd, July 24th. What? Let me start here. What's, uh, what's your level of confidence that, that it will happen and, and we'll see any baseball? Yeah, I mean, all this seems to be changing day by day. I have a high level of confidence that we're going to see baseball. High. I mean, I think... Uh, I don't know if you could say it's a certainty, but it's, uh, to me, it's almost a certainty that we're going to start and try. Uh, now, whether we get all the way through and get to the playoffs and get a World Series in, I guess my confidence level would dip a little bit. Uh, I still, I'm optimistic that if everybody is smart about it, that we can figure out a way to keep most, well, hopefully keep everybody safe keep almost everybody virus free. I'm sure it's probably impossible to do that a hundred percent, but my confidence is pretty high that we're going to get going and give it a try. And I think considering the circumstances it's worth trying. And if that's what we do, then we will have succeeded at some level because this stuff is so complicated and complex and it's so hard for everybody to figure out the right thing to do. Uh, but I do think it's right to try yeah, it's been – I'm a big baseball fan, and it, it's just been – of course, the world kind of seems flipped upside down. But I have noticed, you know, there, there's just a hole where uh, baseball used to fill that that hole for me, whether it be, you know, listening to a game on a, on a Wednesday night or, or watching a game. It's – I, I am hopeful like you, uh, and I'm glad to hear that you're confident it will begin. I'm – really excited to, to watch some baseball and I hope they can fit the, the whole season in but of course we shall see what, what do you make of the format um, so right now it's scheduled for 60 games and they're the, the schedule is it's actually a balanced schedule with teams playing within their division and then uh, essentially across the league uh, with the with the mere division so the the Giants for instance will play the NL West and then the AL West do you, do you think that's the right way to go I think it is. I mean, I, at, at first I was a little confused because, you know, we uh, if you remember back, uh, you know, at the start of all this, when contingency plans were being made, there was this whole idea. And I thought at first it, it was, it was going to be the winning idea of this bubble, go to Arizona, everybody quarantines, you know, the games all get played in one location, no travel whatsoever. So when they decided against that for a lot of good reasons, uh, I thought, well, okay, so everybody's going to be getting on airplanes and traveling. Well, what's the difference with getting on an airplane and going, you know, for instance, the Giants, even if they play the American League West, 
like two Texas teams are going to be flying to Texas. Those are four hour flights. So why not just have some semblance of a, a real national? Why, why do the interleague thing? Just have national league against national league, American league against American league. Um, but I, yeah, I think the way they're doing it is just fine. A little variety with, with 60 games, probably you could have just played divisions and that really would have been maybe the easiest of all, but I'm sure the players are eager to have a little more variety than that. I think, you know, every player wants to play, you know, doesn't want to play the same team over and over and over <laughs> again, even if it's just for a couple months. So I, I think the way they're going to do it is, is a reasonable way to do it. I, I'm laughing because I'm just thinking. So I'm a I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan, and um, just the thought of like last year the Reds and Pirates, right, uh, with some of the bad blood and um, what that would look like this year, having to play the same team over and over yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's a you know, and for players, I think that's often the reason why you don't want to see the same people over and over again. Is just at some point you get tired of looking at those guys on the other side. And you get cranky and stuff like that starts to happen. Uh, so even, you know, and, and since this season is going to be so condensed, I mean, you could envision a scenario if it was 60 games and you were playing, you know, each division opponent so many times and that's all you're playing, you've <laughs> never <laughs> seen anybody else. Yeah. You could see, a, you, you could envision a scenario where some tempers would be flaring and really, you know, I, 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 we can have a chuckle about that and the Pirates, and Reds, and sometimes the Reds and the Cardinals over these last few years have been good examples of that. But, you know, one thing baseball is trying to do is model good behavior, model, you know, social distancing as a part of competitive team sports is sort of ridiculous, but at least baseball is trying to say, look, we're going to be rules followers. We're going to try our best to do our best to, to change the sport in ways to keep people as safe as possible and probably throwing haymakers and tumbling around in the infield is not the safest way to go. Uh, yeah, I read something, uh, something that Major League Baseball explicitly said. You know, brawling and arguing are, are not allowed this year, and it, it just made me laugh because I'm like, wait, was brawling ever allowed? You know, when? Um, but but I get your point. It is funny. It's it is funny because like you can't envision the NBA manual reading that, right? Yeah, uh, we will not allow any brawls. Uh, but for some reason, <laughs> I guess the hockey manual maybe would have to address that. But baseball, we have a long history of that, and uh, we certainly have a history even in the replay era where the arguing has gone down. But still, managers being upset with umpires, and they're asking everybody, no matter unhappy you are. Please don't get in the umpire's face. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, there are a couple wrinkles with uh, with the rules. One being uh, extra innings will now uh, – they're going to start a runner on second base uh, at the, on the, the top of the 10th inning, each inning of, of extra innings. And then the other big one, uh, there will be a DH in the National League. The, the latter – breaks my heart. Dave, tell me you're not a fan of the nat- of, of the uh, the designated hitter. Well, I'm not a fan of the designated hitter. Uh, I feel like it's been inevitable these last few years that we're heading in this direction. So I'm not that surprised by it. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to miss National League Baseball. I think there's a good chance that you and I and people who have been National League fans our whole lives and who that's the baseball that we like to watch. I feel like there's a chance that we're never going to see a National League style game again, ever. 
I mean, I, I haven't announced that the DH is going to be universal from here on out, and that will have to be negotiated. But uh, to me, this is the start of uh, probably a change that is never going to be reversed. And that, that to me, is a sad thing. And I, I, I at least would have liked to have had a year to say goodbye to it. And who knows, maybe next year, if we get back to normal, even if they're going to do it eventually, maybe they'll say, yeah, we are going to give you a full season to try to, to, to say goodbye to nationally, to, you know, to relish it, to enjoy it one last time. Because um, I could see very easily that you and I will never see a National League-style game again. It's it's sad, but you're right. It seems like the tea leaves are all pointing that direction. Um, gosh. And, I, you know, pitchers have, to take part, pitchers have to take part of the blame. And maybe it's not just pitchers. It's organizations telling pitchers, we don't want you hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, everything changes. The money, the money changes everything. And when pitchers start to get big contracts and, you know, I, I, sh- I really even shouldn't say that because a, a young pitcher who's not making a lot of money but is really good is super valuable to a team in a different way. Uh, and and t- teams have just decided, look, it's not worth it to have our pitchers trying hard to be better hitters. It's not worth our pitchers running hard when they get on the bases. I mean, there are still a few pitchers who take their roles as players in a game seriously when they come to the plate, but not, they're not that many of them anymore. And, you know, frankly, even as somebody who loves National League style baseball, I don't love watching pitchers hit 100 with, you know, with no ability to impact the game with the bat. And, you know, even the last couple of years, the, the bunning aspect of the National League game has declined so precipitously that. Uh, I'm not going to miss it quite as much as I would have. If you and I had been talking about this even five years ago, I would have been despondent. And I do have to say that there's a big part of me these last few years. I've watched a lot of pitiful pitchers <laughs> at bats. And I'm not saying hitting is easy. It's not. But, you know, part of it is is that teams have just told pitchers, don't waste your time on that. We don't care. We don't want you to get hurt. So don't work at it. And if you don't work at it, you are going to be pitiful. And – so I, I do think there's a part of me that thinks, all right, well, uh, maybe it's going to be more enjoyable to watch an actual at bat than what we've seen the last few years. You, you've now been, gosh, almost two decades watching Major League Baseball day in and day out. What, what do you make of uh, you know, the direction the game is headed? Yeah, the game's changed dramatically, I would say. Um, even in the, you know, if, if you went back even another 10 years before I started, you probably would find uh, some some dr- even more dramatic changes. Uh, you know, one thing that has changed and gets underreported because everybody look baseball, and I do think baseball and golf have a similarity in this regard. They're sort of traditionalist, purist sports, and there's nothing people love more than to knock the modern game. Like, oh, it's not how it used to be. Oh, the you know, golf used to be better. Baseball, especially, happens in baseball. You know, this, you know, these current players, they don't know how to do this. They don't know how to do that. That gets a little old to me. I think, you know, even in the last 20 years, attendance is up uh, with, a, with a trend in the last couple of years. It's been a little disturbing, but maybe there's some reasons for that. Uh, you know, the, the way people can access the game is like never before. You can watch your team, your Cincinnati Reds, even from home in Florida, you can watch every game. If you've got the app, you can watch wherever you are in the world. Access to the game has never been better. 
Uh, all that stuff is so much improved. It's so much better to be a baseball fan now than it ever has been in terms of following your team and seeing the players you want to see. All that stuff has been a hugely positive change, and that has happened in the last 15 or 20 years. The technology has made that possible. Uh, the biggest changes on the other side, sort of how the game is played. I mean, uh, the game is slower than it's ever been. That is not a good thing. Uh, and that's something that baseball needs to take much more seriously than it has. And it can't just be people like me. It has to be the players themselves realizing it's a, it's a bad thing for the game. Uh, so the pace of play is down. The strikeouts are way up. Home runs are up. Uh, we've had a few fluctuations over the years. But the selling out for power is here to stay. That's a big change. Obviously, the defensive positioning and the way teams think about that stuff is a big change over these last few years. I would argue that the sport on the field, the style of play, the way players train and play, even just the last like three, maybe five years, has been the most radical change in the history of the sport, how the game is being played. And it, the, te the technology is the reason for that. Players have learned how to use technology to make themselves different athletes and different players, and it has impacted the, the product on the field extraordinarily. It, yeah, that, that's that's a great way to put it. And I don't know, I struggle with, I think the bat on ball and when the ball is in play is what makes baseball exciting. And the way the 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 game is going with you know the the three true outcomes um it, it i i don't know the answer it, it just i i don't know and i don't even know what can be done i guess is what really makes it a tough question because i it, it's not i'm i'm it's not like you can I don't know how it's solvable, I guess. Uh, I, and that's not really a question for you, but I, I just worry that the more baseball gets away from the bat on ball and the ball in play, um, it, it's just not going to be the same sport anymore. Well, I mean, I think you're sort of right, and it is a hard problem to solve. I think there are a few things we could do right away that would have an impact. Number one, you could lower the mound again. Uh, that has happened a few times in history. And it does make it easier on the players to put the ball in play. Like that would immediately cut down on strikeouts. You could also, I mean, you know, it sounds sort of ridiculous, but you could 60 feet, six inches is so etched into every baseball fan and player's minds. But you could very slowly, you know, move it back an inch or two. if you moved it back something significant, you would be, I think, at risk of hurting pitcher. You know, you, if you did it too fast, it would be too radical of a change and you could risk some real negative side effects. I think you could at least consider inching it back. Even just a fraction of a second extra for hitters would be valuable the way these athletes are trained. Uh, because no, you know, there's never been a time even close where pitchers are throwing harder than they are, as hard as they are now. Uh, and that reaction time has to be even faster giving players even a fraction of a second more would help. So those are two things you could consider to help cut down on strikeouts. Uh, I think fans like home runs. I mean, I'm with you. The, when the ball's in play and it's not a home run, often those are the most fun parts of a game. But I'm also not quite as convinced. You know, some of the baseball writers who are prominent just rail against the home run and the strikeout and the 
they act like fans don't want to see that stuff. I mean, I, I think fans do like seeing home runs and the ball uh, over the fence, and they do like seeing a big strikeout in a big spot. It's just we've sort of reached a point where there's probably a little too much of those things, and I do think there are a few things we could do to help combat that. Yeah. Um, who are the guys – maybe past and present that you most enjoy watching? Yeah, as a kid, like if we go past, my, my favorite players as a kid, I loved watching Ozzie Smith. And part of that was, you know, it's sort of to your point of the ball in play and watching players with athleticism play defense and uh, the things that Ozzie could do uh, were so amazing. But as a kid, you know, a little kid, I, I liked the backflip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, could run out on the field for opening day or for a playoff game, and he'd do the best. Yeah, when you're a little <laughs> kid, like there's nothing more fun than that. Uh, and I've always sort of remembered that because I do think there's a lesson. Baseball sometimes legislates out personality and fun. And for me as a kid, that was the most fun thing. And I wish we had more stuff. I'm not saying players need to do backflips across the field, but more stuff like that would be more fun for kids to get them into baseball in a different way. Uh, Ozzy and Cal Ripken were my two favorite players growing up. You know, in this era, uh, it's funny because the Giants, the team that I cover on a day-to-day basis, have had such a, such a wild ride in terms of different kinds of teams. You know, we've gone from the Barry Bonds Giants teams to the pitching-dominated World Series winning teams. Buster Posey's been in the middle of it. But I, to me, the most thrilling player for me of the last decade has been Tim Lincecum, Giants pitcher. I, you know, there was, it was two things. Number one, he was at the forefront of a lot of this strikeout. Not that there haven't been strikeouts before, but you know, it wasn't like it is now across the board. And it was just so different to watch him than so many other pitchers. And number two, he's 5'10", 160 pounds. He looked like your little leaguer walked out onto a big league field and started striking out the biggest sluggers <laughs> in the game. And I, I just always found that so compelling. It's one of the things I love about baseball is that all shapes and sizes, everybody can play the game and succeed at the highest level. And Tim almost epitomized that to me where uh, he just was, you know, they called him the freak, which was true, but in a different way. Like usually when you think of freak, you think of, Shaquille O'Neal mm-hmm. or, you know, Bo Jackson, somebody like that. Tim Lincecum was a freak because he didn't look like those guys, and yet he still could throw 98 and blow away everybody and win two Cy Youngs an award, and that's what made him freakish. L- let me ask you, on the broadcasting side, um, the, the, you just mentioned the, the Giants have had some very good teams. You've, you've called World Series champions, um, You've also called a, a ton of big moments, perfect games. Do you have a favorite call personally, one that stands out above uh, above others for you? Well, I mean, I think I, I do think a perfect game is different even than um, an, a no hitter, and we've had a lot of Giants no hitters lately. Matt came through the only perfect game in the history of the Giants, and uh, that night was super memorable. Uh, it was the night before the U.S. Open was played at the Olympic Club in San Francisco. And uh, I, I sat in the office of the Giants home clubhouse before the game with, of all people, Dustin Johnson talking about Olympic Club and how it was going to play and how he thought the course was going to be. And uh, and Matt Cain went out before the game. He was the starting pitcher that night. And 
had a long drive contest uh, <laughs> with Dustin at from home plate, hitting the ball out into McCovey Cove. Had to get special permission from the general manager uh, because ordinarily a starting pitcher would never be allowed to do that on a night where he was going to pitch. And the Giants general manager said, okay, fine. One swing is not going to hurt you. You can go out there an hour before the game and do that. And he did, and he pitched a perfect game. And I've always sort of put those two things together. Uh, but it's not just that pitching. It, it, there was one great catch that I will never forget. And I think that, you know, to me, a perfect game is pitching, but also everybody else around the pitcher. And so a, a Gregor Blanco catch in a perfect game will always stand out to me, which is funny considering how many big bonds, home runs, and whatnot. And I also called the final out of a World Series winning team. Uh, so my fellow broadcasters and I, we've sort of switched off on the Giants World Series of who got to call the final out. And the, the second World Series win for the Giants in Detroit, Sergio Romo struck out Miguel Cabrera for the final out of a World Series. And there are just not many people who've ever been able to call the last out of a World Series win. And, uh, and I'm one of those people, so that's another one I'll never forget. Well, real quick, what do you, uh, how was Matt Cain? How did he fare against Dustin Johnson? Do you remember? Well, I, I think Dustin, you know, there was nobody out in the water actually measuring. It was more like a, it was, you know, it was more like a show off contest. Yeah. Uh, but, but Matt's a pretty big really guy, impressive. right? I mean, he, and, and he plays oh, some golf, if he, I'm not mistaken. He played a lot of golf and he could kill the ball. Yeah. I mean, he, he killed it. He easily, we would go down and play, uh, the Pebble Beach, uh, you know, not the actual pro-am, but he and I would be a part of a contingent for years that would go down a couple days before the pro-am every February and have like a little charity shootout with some 49ers players. And Matt would not just easily, but no sweat on 18 at Pebble, just blow it over the tree in the middle of the fairway. Like not even, (laughs) not even a shadow of a doubt, uh, I mean, he's carrying the ball. Matt was carrying the ball 310, 320, easy. Uh, and so, you know, maybe that's not quite Dustin Johnson, but that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about the Bonds 715th home run call. I was in preparation for the interview I was, I was reading, and I never realized that your microphone got cut out um, – uh, essentially for, for most of your call because it's such an iconic moment. I mean, they most likely would have sent that to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Is that How, how do you reflect upon that moment? Do you, do you just have to kind of laugh or is it is it more disappointing than that? I do chuckle uh, now. I wasn't chuckling that day, really, because uh, you're right. I mean, that, part of being with the Giants at that time was Bonds was setting all these records and approaching all these milestones and every at bat when he got close was such a huge deal. And it was like, well, which, you know, is he going to do it here? And uh, so the, the buildup and the anticipation for all those at bats was incredible. Uh, and that particular one, I mean, here's what I chuckle about now, because seriously, you know, just the short, short story is he hits the home run to pass Babe Ruth enormous milestone in the history of the game and right in the middle of my home run call my microphone not the whole broadcast it's not like the whole broadcast left the airwaves my microphone just cut out period and uh and so the you could hear the crowd noise you could hear the start of my call and then it just went away and uh and so look i've been i've done i don't know how many giants games more than three thousand over these last 
almost 20 years. That's the only moment ever that that's happened ever. So, you know, I do chuckle because we there literally was an investigation. What huh. happened? They had engineers out there. What could have possibly gone wrong? Uh, but it was a big story. I mean, it was a big deal. Good Morning America was calling me the next day about uh, the curse of the Bambino and did Babe Ruth come back from the dead and <laughs> strike down the call or well, all the you know all this <laughs> funny stuff. And they literally sent people out to do like, and they came up with some piece along the way, some piece of equipment or part that they thought malfunctioned. But but I I just to this day find it too hard to believe that all the controversy around Barry and what he was doing, 20 years, 3,000 broadcasts, the only moment that something like that ever happened was this moment where he was in the middle of the home run to pass the babe. And uh, so I will forever, ever figure somebody did something. I don't know who did it. I don't know where they did it, but somebody did something to that call. Huh. Too much of a coincidence, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, it's like, of all moments, it couldn't have been an Edgardo Alfonso base hit, uh, <laughs> you know, on a, a Tuesday in July or something. Like, no, it was it was the swing in the middle of the home run call, Barry passing the base. That seems like too much of a coincidence to me. Well, now you, I, I mean, I'm, I kind of want it to be the the ghost, uh, you know, the curse of the Bambino. I, that's that's what I, <laughs> at least personally, that's what that's kind of what I'm rooting for, I guess. Well, and, that, and and that's what it was, you know, because it happened and there was chaos because I didn't believe it at first. You know, I was in the booth uh, making the call and after a few seconds, the engineer starts freaking out and like doing jumping jacks in the back of the booth. Nobody heard it. Nobody heard it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Because it sounded normal to me. My microphone sounded totally fine in my headphone. It, it, there was no indication to me that anything was different about the call. And... So I didn't believe him at first, and I just was letting the crowd tell the story and sort of laid out after the home run call and whatnot. And finally, finally, he he convinced us that something had gone wrong, and we had to come on and say, you know, we apologize. I used a uh, like a backup emergency mic. If you didn't hear that, Bonds just hit a home run, and so we were all sick about it. We didn't know what to do. How, how could this happen? What was going on? It was just chaos in the moment and after the games the all the writers reporters i mean after they were done with barry they were swarming me like what what happened what was this and i did use some throwaway line about well i guess the curse of the bambino is real because uh, at that <laughs> point the red sox you know the, the curse of the bambino maybe to kids now the red sox have won enough world series to to have sort of forgotten about that but that was still at the point where everybody knew exactly what that meant and uh and so I used a little laugh line, and, and I think that's what, you know, people sort of glommed onto. Yeah, it is. The Bambino's still alive. He's still kicking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, I, yeah, I, I guess I had never really realized that. So I, I appreciate you kind of laying out the, the full story there. Um, well, let me ask you this. You know, and it's, it, like, yeah. it, you know, it's probably gone into history, but for us locally, it was a big deal at the time. It, you know, it wasn't not like that happened on the World Series stage or something like that, but it was a it was a very very strange occurrence, and I but I can chuckle about it now. Sure, enough in the past, I can laugh about it. Well, it's just I, I think baseball maybe more than. I, gosh, it seems like maybe more than any sport, but maybe just because I'm a baseball fan. But I, you know. 
I'm thinking every big Cincinnati Reds moment of my life I can associate with with a broadcast call. And so just thinking about, you know, something as big as what Barry Bonds passing Babe Ruth and, and to not really have a, a radio call with that is, yeah, that's that's quite something. In terms, this one belongs to the Reds. Exactly. Great Marty Brenneman. We yeah. Miss, we miss him already. Well, and that's, that's a great segue because I was going to ask, I, I read that you listened to a lot of John Miller uh, growing up in Virginia when he was with the Orioles. And of course, now you've worked with him in San Francisco. Were there other announcers along the way that were most formative for your style? Well, I, I did love listening to Marty, although nobody can be as opinionated as Marty and get away with it. Like, Mar- <laughs> you know, Marty was his own uh, person for all those years, which is one of the reasons why I just totally loved him. Uh, and, and John, I listened to as a kid, and it is funny to work with somebody that you grew up, uh, you know, loving so much from afar. Uh, so that's been a professional thrill for me. The other guy was Jack Buck because my grandparents lived in Missouri. And so we would go in the summertime when I was a little kid and we'd watch the Cardinals and listen to the Cardinals. And so we put Jack Buck on and my grandfather absolutely loved him. And I grew to love him too. Uh, so I would say those three stand out to me and and the national guys too, because you know, when you're, I grew up in Virginia, but around Washington, D.C., we had the Orioles, who were our team, sort of, but we didn't have a team uh, when I was a kid here in D.C., and so uh, we were national baseball fans, and so the network guys, the guys like Costas and even young Sean McDonough when he was calling the World Series for a few years, uh, those were guys that I really admired as well. Yeah. How, how did you get into broadcasting? When uh, when did that become something that you thought you might want to do um, and then, you know, pursue professionally eventually? Totally, totally did it as a hobby as a college student. So I came from the East Coast and I, got, I went out to Stanford as an undergrad. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I thought I'd go to law school or something, but I was a I was an ancient Greek language major. I was a classics major at Stanford. Uh, <laughs> had no inkling whatsoever that I would do anything like this, but but we had a college station, and so as a student, Stanford gave us the chance to do all these games and travel with teams and be in the press box and all this stuff. And so I I just really started doing it because it sounded fun, and I was a huge sports fan and wasn't going to be an athlete at uh, Stanford and did it just to get my sports itch scratched. You know, I just, it was purely for fun. And a couple of years in after doing it as a hobby, I just thought, well, I'm really going to regret it if I don't try. So I'll give it a try. If it doesn't work, if I'm floundering, if I, nobody likes it, I'm just, I'll, I'll quit and go back to school or do something else. Uh, but thankfully for me, I got a couple breaks when I was young and climbed the ladder pretty quickly. And here I am. Do you speak Greek? <laughs> ancient Greek is different than modern Greek. So okay. I was an ancient Greek language major. We didn't really speak, although we did pronounce the words when we read them out loud. We read them. We'd read like, you know, Plato or Homer's Odyssey or uh, one of the tragedies or something. And we, that's sort of, that's what we did, but we weren't talking to each other very often. Okay. Okay. Um, because I did you see, can imagine I use that every day, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, and I'm glad you brought it up cause I did want to ask you about that. Um, I, I imagine you might be the first baseball broadcaster that studied classics. I, I mean, I, I got to think that's a short list. 
I think it's a short list. I think I am. Uh, but I tell kids, well, you know, because one, one thing when you get into the business and make your way up to a higher level, uh, you know, you start to become a mentor to people coming after you. And especially since I'm still relatively young, but for a lot of my career, I've been really young. So I think I'm, I'm a little more approachable at times for young kids who want some advice, who want to do this. And so I've been happy to be that person for a, a lot of folks through the years. And one thing that I always tell young people who want to get into sports, sports announcing, sports, whatever, is you don't have to go to school and major in broadcast journalism or sports management. You can, and if that's what you want to do, great. But but study something that makes you love learning, makes you engaged, makes you happy, makes your brain work. Like fire those brain cells and and learn how to learn and talk and write and read. And then you can do almost anything, I think. And so I always felt like that's what I liked. I really enjoyed it. It made me engaged in school and want to be a student. And so it sparked me. And and that's the only reason I did it, not for any career goal or anything. And then I just figured, well, I can go get a job and start to learn some skills and, and then figure out what I want to do after that. And maybe that's a luxury. Maybe some people can't do that. Uh, you know, maybe some people really feel the pressure to, to get true professional training right away. But if you have that luxury, I mean, I think for any young person who wants to do what you're doing, what I'm doing, just being a learner and being engaged and then getting some practice at the stuff you want to do. Like if you want to run a podcast or call games, like try doing it. You don't necessarily have to study it in class. Just, just do it and be a, a, a citizen of the world and a learner and a thinker. And I think the rest takes care of it. So I, I don't know if anybody's ever listened to me when I've said that stuff, but for me that really worked. Just find some stuff that you think is fun and you enjoy doing and things usually turn out pretty well. Yeah. A- amen to that. No, that, that message certainly resonates with me. Let me ask you, you called Stanford football and basketball games for a, a, a little stretch there in the late 2000s, um, early 2010s. I got to ask you about Jim Harbaugh and your, your impressions of him. Did you have a sense maybe early on that he was a little bit different? Well, for sure. Yeah. Uh, he, he and I were together his first year was my first year back at Stanford, not as a student, but as the professional voice of the football team. And uh, so we had a connection. And Jim and I, to this day, are very friendly. Uh, and Jim would not mind me saying whatsoever that, yeah, he was really different. <laughs> and in, in a lot of ways, he was sort of goofy right from the start, but goofy in a good way to me. Like, Jim gets criticized for certain things, but 90% of what he does is different in a really good way. And, uh, and, you know, Stanford's football program was in shambles when he took over and all of us who care about that school and that program will ever be for forever be indebted to him for just believing that it was possible to have a good team. And to me, Jim Harbaugh above all else is an example of the power of just willing something to happen. Jim just said, look, we're not going to accept this, that this program stinks and that everybody around this campus is apathetic and that nobody thinks you can admit students who are good students and good football players and do both. I mean, Jim just wouldn't accept that. He would not take no 
for an answer. We can find those kids who are good students, who want to go to class, who want to be at this challenging university. And there are a lot, and Stanford's not alone in that regard. Uh, but, you know, there's maybe some admission standards that are a little different. It's always been used as an excuse there. And Jim took it from an excuse to a selling point. Jim thought, you know what? Every other coach here has whined and cried about admissions, admissions, admissions. I'm going to use it to my benefit. I'm going to sell those kids who are good high school students and good football players on coming here, and this is the only place for you. And you know what? He did it. And I, there is such a great lesson from how he did that in taking what others think is a negative or whatever and turning that to your advantage. I don't think I've ever seen a better example of it in my adult life than what he did at Stanford. And he, it was remarkable and it's continued to this day. They have the same sort of ethos now uh, that he instilled all those years ago. Yeah. And I, I'm right there with you. He, and I think I read your first game uh, maybe was the upset of USC. Is, is that right? Yeah. 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 That is correct. Um, 42 point underdog, 42 point underdog, not, not Appalachian state at Michigan, not, you know, I would pick another one from the, you know, more recent history of, you know, of, of an FCS school or whatever. This was two law, two rival schools. Stanford and USC have been playing each other for a hundred years. It's a terrific football rivalry with great players throughout its history. Stanford was 42 point underdog. I mean, it's almost impossible. And they beat him at the Coliseum. And I, I, Jim, we got, we, we did it. The, the, the game ends. Nobody can believe it. People are like, people are just literally in disbelief on both sides. And we finally shuffle out of there and get ready to get on the plane. And I remember walking up those stairs into that charter plane to fly back home late at night. I mean, it was late by that past, past midnight at that point and walking on the plane and Jim, he was doing it to everybody, but he, squeezed the life out of me he gave me the biggest hug he had the biggest smile on his face i think i've ever seen of anybody after that win he knew what a big deal that was the uh did you ever do you know about the anecdote with the with the traffic cop him watching the traffic cop i think it was from his time at stanford um but that will always stick with me i i guess the the story goes you know he was going somewhere and he saw this traffic cop uh, just doing a, a really, really good job of, of directing traffic and was just like taken by, you know, the, and I don't even know if it was a man or a woman, but but by their, you know, their presence and their authority and their composure. And I, the, the anecdote goes that he just sat there for 30 minutes, just appreciating how well uh, this person was directing traffic. And I don't know why that that anecdote has always stuck with me and there's such a kernel of truth in that like it's such a pleasure to watch people do something like really well um and so everything you've talked about like i i i think jim harbaugh is a fascinating person and i i actually i, I you know i've been a little surprised that he hasn't done maybe as well at michigan as um I, well, maybe the expectations were too high, but I, I just, he, he is a completely fascinating person. So I, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you uh, shedding some light on, uh, on his time. I, at totally, I mean, I, I totally agree. And, uh, and I think it is a little unfair. Like Jim is, you know, the expectations are huge at Michigan and he's up against a total juggernaut 
you know, Ohio State of the last 10 years is something different. Uh, you know, recruiting at a level that uh, is almost unmatched in college football history, maybe not quite, but, uh, you know, that elite of talent. And uh, but by every other measure, in my opinion, Michigan's been a success under Jim. It's just that it's that one comparison, and I hope they get over the hump one of these years and beat them because I root for Jim big time. I do. I mean, and that's not to say I'm not an Ohio State hater, but I just, I just really like what Jim is about. And it's not always, you know, for a guy who comes across as so ultra competitive, for him it isn't always about the W or the L or the. It is about what you're talking about, and uh, and I'm with you. I think it's a great lesson. Uh, all right, I got to ask you about golf. I know you're a golfer. Um, how is your golf game? How would you describe your golf game? What are your strengths and weaknesses? <laughs> Here's where we wade into <laughs> some murky waters. Uh, well, I mean, by the standards of amateurs, I am a good player. I'm a two handicap. Uh, so I am a good golfer by that standard. I'm not a great, you know, I'm not some super long hitter. I don't do anything spectacularly well, but I'm solid. I avoid the big mistakes. I never, you know, I can't remember the last time I lost. I, I, I've lost one. I played some golf here during this shelter in place and stay at home and all this stuff. I probably lost one golf ball in 25 rounds. But, you know, I just keep it in play. I, I don't make huge mistakes. Make some birdies, and you know that's good enough for me. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not like a flashy, spectacular player. I will say this. Like everybody else in golf and baseball, I've finally learned how to use a little technology. You know, I got a club fitting. I don't do lessons or anything like that, but I got a new driver and the guy set up the track man behind me. And in 10 minutes, I learned more than I had in 20 years about my golf swing and how to hit the ball farther. I mean, it literally took about eight swings. And I, was, <laughs> I said to the guy, okay, now I know, I know what to do now. Uh, and so I added probably 25 yards to my average drive, I bet, in, in 10 minutes of work with that dang track man thing. And, uh, and I think there's, you know, in baseball, that is so what is happening these days with pitchers. Pitchers learn a new pitch now in, in six pitches with the spin technology and the high-speed cameras. It used to take six months for these guys to, like, develop a new weapon and and now they go into these pitching labs and they change a grip and they get the immediate readout. Oh, no, nope. let's move this finger over a half centimeter in this direction. Yep, that's more like it. Let's keep doing that. And within 10 pitches, they've got four miles an hour or 500 RPMs of spin rate extra, you know, something that they never would have been able to do before. And in golf, that has clearly happened with the technology and on a very, very amateur level. It happened to me, so that was a that was probably not the answer you were looking for. But uh, I'm a good golfer. I love the game. There's nothing more that I love doing, you know, outside of my work than playing golf. And uh, so I'm happy to be good enough to, you know, sort of hang with anybody I I would want to play with. You've completely blown my mind, and you buried the lead. You've lost one golf ball in in about 25 rounds of play. I, I don't even know how that <laughs> that that's completely well, mind blowing. I will say this: I'm not playing Florida golf with a with a you know a lake on every other hole. So uh, the golf that I play in California is mostly sort of open fairways, no dense trees. You can find your ball almost you know as long as you don't 
hook it 100 yards, you can find your ball. So, yeah. And I do get made fun of by my golfing partners because <laughs> I don't I don't like to break out. You know, I just figure, well, the golf ball is a golf ball. I, I You know, it would take a lot of hits to that thing to, to take the juice out of it. So, I do tend to play with the same, same couple of golf balls. They can look a little, you know, scuffed up over – time and i some of one recently one of my good golfing buddies did get on me about that he, he thought that it was probably time for me to open up a new sleeve well, i agreed i did oh uh, yeah it must be nice you probably just buy a, a box of balls each year i, I mean that's uh yeah that's cost effective if I, nothing I, else I, I placed a golf ball order now part of it is in my job i do get some premiums so we play in some events or you go you, know, you get a dozen here a dozen there so that's that's most of the reason why, but I placed a golf ball order for the first time in years this spring, and of course I haven't gotten them yet because the the you know the shutdown the fat, the Titleist factory was not printing. You know I've ordered some you know like my initials on it or whatever a, a, a custom number, and I got an email like eight weeks later. Sorry, our factory can't do that. Would you like just a standard dozen or whatever I ordered and. So I'm I'm still waiting for those to show up. I could have just walked into the to the pro shop and bought a dozen golf balls, but there was a promotion or something. You know, there was uh, some of sale. So I <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. So now here I am, months later, still waiting for them. Yeah. Uh, well, you live in a wonderful uh, area of the, of the country for golf, San Francisco. What what are the courses you like to play out there? I do. I, I do. I mean, I, you know, I, and I travel, so I get to see the other places in the country. You know, Philadelphia is a wonderful golf town. New York, obviously, especially if you go out uh, to the, to Long Island is amazing golf. Chicago's got incredible golf, but uh, I, it's hard to beat Northern California. Uh, we just have, we have variety. We have classics. We have great public access courses. We've got a little bit of everything. Uh, yeah, I'm a San Francisco golf club member, and to me, it's the greatest you know home club in the world. I just love it. Uh, it's such a wonderful place to play. Uh, but you know, like it's hard to beat when you drive down to the peninsula and you get to play every once in a while. Uh, lucky enough to play Pebble or Cypress or one of those, or you know, play the Olympic Club uh, Harding Park, where the PGA is going to be here in a few weeks. is a wonderful place to play. There's hidden gems, you know, Pasa Tiempo probably doesn't get enough uh, credit for being a great golf course in, outside Santa Cruz. Uh, we have we have link style, we have inland courses, we've got a little bit of everything in Northern California, and I, I love California golf, especially in where we are. I read uh, the seventh hole at San Francisco Golf Club, it, it overlooks the last, the, the site of the last legal duel in California. Is that something that the club makes any kind of deal over? Is there like a plaque or anything commemorating that? There is a plaque. The, 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 the spot where the duel happened, you can look down in sort of the ravine just to the right of the hole, and there's two posts, old-timey, put there, you know, I don't know how long ago, um, not by the golf club, that mark the spot where David Broderick and David Terry had that last legal duel. And... Uh, there is a plaque on the tee of the seventh hole. It is known as affectionately as the dual hole. And it is, it's a little slice of California history right there. I mean, you know, years before 50 years before there was even the conception of a golf course on that spot, but that is the, the spot of the last uh, legal duel in California. 
I love I love little nuggets like that. Um, that was that was very cool. Uh, the other place I got to ask you. And I think I think if you if you go read, you know, Tilling has designed the course. I think it's his favorite par three that he ever. I mean, it's a wonderful hole. That's sort of the signature hole, but partially because of that history. But I think Tillinghass was quoted even as saying it's his favorite par three that he ever designed. Huh. Um, the only other, yeah, yeah. The only other place I was going to ask you: Have you ever gotten north of the city up to uh, Northwood Golf Club by chance? A little Mackenzie up there. Northwood, you know, it. You know, I've never played it. A lot of people that I know go up there in the summertime and uh, and play. It's it's a cool, quirky place. I know exactly where it is. I know. It's an old McKinsey design, but I, I can't say that I've ever, that, I got to do that. I have to get up there and play it. Have you ever done it? I have not played it, but that's, that's on my list. Uh, you know, it, whenever I can get out to the San Francisco area again, um, that's right at the top of my list. So yeah, you, you got to get up there. Be. Everybody <laughs> loves it. I do. I need to, you know, my, my, my schedule is busy. And so I, you know, I, I do love to play. I don't play as much as I would like to. And I especially don't sort of travel to play as much as I would like to. Uh, and someday in my life, I will correct that. But uh, I got to get the schedule under control. I love to work, so I can't complain. I have great work, uh, but it does cut into the golf game a little bit. Sure. Uh, do you, in normal times, do you take your clubs with you on the road when you're um, working with the Giants? Normal times I have often done that. Not maybe not every trip, but uh, you know, particularly for going to a place where I know I have a club or a friend who belongs to a club that uh, I can play with. You know, baseball is funny; it sort of varies team by team. And the Giants have never been anti-golf. They they let me bring my clubs wherever I want to. But as far as the players are concerned, and like the staff, they've never been embracing of golf the way that say. In the old days, Bobby Cox and the Braves loved to have the pitchers play. So a lot of times I'm just on my own. And it, it's less fun to, to, to plan and rent a car or an Uber or whatever and schlep the clubs around uh, if you're by yourself. Mm-hmm. So I save it for when I'm with some buddies or someone that I really uh, enjoy playing with or a great course that I know somebody can uh, help me get on, something like that. That. But, but yeah, to answer your question, I do like to, to bring them and it's a great way to travel. You know, you, you find out stuff about these different parts of the world and not just what the terrain is like and the natural world is like, but what the people are like too. I mean, you know that better than anybody, what golf can do in terms of meeting people around the, around the country and the world. Yeah. Uh, well, let me get you out of here with, uh, with this last question and, no pressure. I, everybody knows you're, you know, a classics guy from Stanford. So I'm, I'm, I'm just teasing. But I like to ask people: Have, have you, uh, and maybe during quarantine, I don't know if you've had a chance. Have you read any good books lately? Anything that uh, has caught your attention and and you would recommend to to listeners? Okay, uh, so I'll recommend a couple. Um, there's one that I read. So I started reading some long books and I decided, okay, I read some long books and now I need to read some shorter books. <laughs> yeah. And so recently, recently I read a book called Turbulence. And I don't know that I even know how to uh, pronounce the author's last name. He's a fairly well-known guy. It's like David Slazny is his name. I read it in one day. 
it couldn't have been an easier, not to say it was a simple book, but an easier book to read. And it was fascinating and really cool. And so I would recommend that if, if people are looking for like a quick read for an airplane ride or you have a free weekend at home, Turbulence. It, was, it, it just came out like, uh, you know, last fall or something like that. I'm guessing it's, it's a novel or is it? Or is it it's, like- an, it's a novel. It's a novel. But the way it's structured is every chapter is a short story, essentially. But but the one character from each chapter carries over to the next. So it's like a thread where the story jumps around the world through airplane flights of people in different parts of the world. I just thought it was super clever and a really fun read. That, that is a good, uh, again, I don't want to insult the authors very well done, uh, but easy read as opposed to like another one that I did during this, uh, shelter in place was, did you ever read the executioner's song by Norman Mailer? I have not. No. No, okay, it's probably twelve hundred pages. I mean, it's just this <laughs> and that would be probably why I didn't read it. <laughs> it. It is utterly, totally fascinating, incredible. One of the best, like most unique books that I've ever read. I can't imagine the research that went into it, but it just took me weeks and weeks. It was it was an unbelievable task to read that book. And I loved it, and I'm glad I did it. This would probably be the only time I would ever have a chance to do it. If you're looking for a long classic to read, that's a good one, if you don't mind dark. I mean, it's about a, a, a convicted uh, murderer on death row. But The Executioner's Song is an incredible book. But I was in the mood for something a little shorter after that. Gotcha. Um, well, understandable. Uh, Dave, I'll, I'll, I'll get you out of there with that. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, I hope I, I speak on behalf of, you know, not only myself, but all the baseball fans. I, I hope to hear you calling giants games here at the end of the month. And, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Me too. Me too. I'm glad you're a baseball fan like I am and, uh, and keep up the good work. All you guys, I love the, the all the different stuff that you guys do. So I'm a fan and, uh, and I hope we keep go- golf seems to be, you know, I mean, it's not been perfect, but golf is providing a good model of how to overcome some players test positive and whatnot. Baseball, we can do it. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Try our best to keep everybody safe and, uh, and see if we can't play some ball games. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who 